0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 7 this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's a treasure and it's a gift. And we pray that you would tune our ears, Father, so that we hear what it is that you're wanting to communicate with us. So often, Lord, we look for you in the whirlwind, we look for you in the fire, we look for you in the earthquake, but so often, Lord, you come to us in the still, small voice. And so we need to be leaning in. We need to be listening so that we don't miss what it is that you're wanting to communicate with us because every word that comes from your mouth is precious and life-giving and transformative. And so, Lord, would you take your living word and plant it deep within our hearts and change us from the inside out? In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. 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 The title of my message for you this evening is Life Overflowing, and we're coming out of John 7. I just wanted to say that... Between the end of John 6 and the beginning of John 7, some time has passed. And so there's about a a six-month gap there between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. And so in chapter 6, we were in jerusalem at the the passover feast and by the the beginning of chapter 7 we're now back in jerusalem for the feast of tabernacles you say well what was going on during that six month period of time and the other gospels are there to fill in the gaps which is why i love the fact that we have not just one account of jesus life but we have four different accounts and by looking at the other three we can piece together what jesus was doing during that season. And what we find is is he was ministering in and around the Galilee region. He was performing miracles. He was casting out demons. And he was focusing primarily on pouring into and discipling the 12 disciples. He knew that his time was short, and so he wanted to dedicate himself to pouring into them so that they could carry on his mission after he was gone. But all of that to say this. As we enter John 7, we are now entering the home stretch of Jesus' ministry. Six months from this period of time, Jesus will be hanging on a cross, which is is really quite staggering to think about, considering we're only in chapter 7. It tells us that John, in his recounting of the narrative of Jesus' life, dedicates two-thirds of his gospel to the last six month window of Jesus' ministry. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it's noteworthy. Why would he do that? Because very simply, the message of the gospels is the message of the cross and everything is moving towards that. And so we're picking up steam as Jesus goes to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. With that as an introduction, let's go ahead and begin reading there in verse one of chapter seven. It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't wanna go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there might see the works that you're doing. No one, wants to be, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So we see here in the first five verses this mounting hostility as now it's out there in the open that the religious leaders want Jesus dead. There are wanted posters with his picture plastered on them. The Feast of Tabernacles is the backdrop for this scene as it unfolds in John 7. It was one of three major feasts that kind of distinguished the Jewish calendar, and all Jewish males who were above a certain age were required by law to be in Jerusalem to celebrate these three feasts. You had the Passover, and then Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish historian Josephus says that of all the feasts, The Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyous, the most celebratory. And part of the reason for that, why it was so looked forward to, particularly by kids, is for that during the duration of this feast, everybody would move out of their homes for a week, and they would move into these little tents that they would set up with thatched roofs, and and everyone would, would stay in these booths or these shacks. And they would do this for a whole week to remember and rehearse how God had led the children of Israel through the wilderness over a period of 40 years, and how he had taken care of them during that time. And the Bible tells us that their clothes didn't wear out and their shoes didn't wear thin. During that season, God provided for over a million Israelites in a miraculous and supernatural and divine way. You might recall how the Old Testament, in particular, the book of Exodus, tells us that at night, he would cause there to be a pillar of fire to keep them warm. And then during the day in the Middle East, where it gets hot, he would become to them a cover of cloud. Why? To keep them cool. And he would guide them by the fire and by the cloud and so as they wandered through the wilderness all they had to do was follow the Lord's presence and then every morning get this the Lord would feed them miraculously miraculously supernaturally by raining down manna from heaven and he provided rock, water from them from a rock i mean They never would have survived without God's divine protection and provision. And so this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, was a way for the Israelites to remember God's faithfulness to them during this season, how he had brought them through the wilderness. And now here they were in the promised land. And by the way, Christian, let me say this to you. Did you know that the the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14 talks about this, how during the millennial reign of Christ, how we're going to continue to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Isn't that interesting? So you'll get to participate in the Feast of Tabernacles with the Lord on the earth, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. You say, well, why would we do that? Well, think about it. In the same way that God had led the Israelites through the wilderness and into the promised land, In a sense, God is leading us through our own wilderness wanderings as we make our way to the promised land of heaven and the coming kingdom, and God wants us to know that he is with us and has been with us just as he was with them. And so that's kind of the backdrop that's going on, and what we see is Jesus' brothers come to him and they offer him a little bit of brotherly advice. They told him that he should go to Jerusalem since it's the feast, everyone's supposed to be there. They were aware of his miracles, and perhaps, like everyone else, they were looking for Jesus to to launch a political campaign or even a revolution. They knew that he wasn't going to get anywhere staying in Galilee. Galilee was maybe his home base of operations, but it was a small town. Nothing noteworthy or newsworthy ever happened in Galilee. And so they said to Jesus, and this was an axiom of the time, Nobody who wants to make himself known does it in a place like this. Go show yourself to the world. Jerusalem being the religious epicenter of the ancient world was the obvious place for a religious figure like Jesus to make his move. And then in verse 5, John adds the commentary that they said this because they didn't believe in him. Yet, I might add. And I say yet because we know from the the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus' brothers would, in fact, go on to become believers in him. It happened after his resurrection. Paul tells us in Corinthians that Jesus appeared to many of the brethren after his uh, resurrection, including his own brothers. And that was it. They became believers in that moment. And then in the book of Acts, check this out. Before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gathers all of his disciples, and then in their, their eyes, he ascends into heaven, and the angels make their proclamation, and the book of Acts tells us that the disciples return to the upper room. And then, this is in your notes, this is Acts 1.14. Let's read this together out loud. It says, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and married the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. All right, so notice who's there in the upper room with the disciples. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus. And notice who she's praying to, her son, Jesus. It doesn't say that they were all praying to Mary. For those of you with a Catholic background, I know Mary's with the other disciples and they're all praying to Jesus. And who else is there but Jesus' own brothers. Now, if you needed a little bit more evidence In support of Jesus' claim to be God, how about this? His own brothers came to believe in him as their Messiah. To me, that's pretty compelling evidence. I mean, just think of your own family. How many of you grew up with a brother or brothers? Raise your hands. Now, what would your brother have to do to prove to you or convince you that he was, in fact, God in the human flesh? (laughs) I mean, right? It's just like not going to happen. When you grow up with someone, you have a front row seat for all the good the bad and the ugly. And Jesus brothers grew up watching their perfect older brother. I mean how many times do you think they heard Mary say, "Why can't you be more like Jesus?" You know. And they're like, "But mom, he's like perfect, you know." And that's kind of the point. You know, Jesus never got in trouble, never did anything wrong. He grew up with his brothers, but they didn't believe in him. And yet in the end, they came to believe that their own brother was the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And we know that one of them, James, became uh, a pillar in the early church. And another one, Jude, he went on to write a book of the Bible. So two of them actually wrote books of the Bible. And I, I hope that encourages someone in here today who has unbelieving family members and maybe you think, you know, there's just no, no way they're ever going to come to faith in the Lord. And oftentimes, those closest to us are the most reluctant to believe in the Lord that we've come to know and love. And they're the hardest ones to reach. And that's true for us, even as it was true for Jesus. But this story is here to give us hope. Keep praying. Right. Jesus, brothers, came to believe in him. And so, too, will your family. You know, one thing I love about the scriptures is God is into redeeming families. He loves to to save entire families. So don't give up. I love the word of the Lord that Paul spoke to the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you and your house will be saved. Amen? Amen. God wants to save your family. All right, moving on in verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time has not yet come. So this is his response to his brothers. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You guys go ahead at the festival, but I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Now, After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, <clears throat> after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. All right, let's talk about God's perfect timing for a minute. These verses give us a window, another window, into the divine schedule that Jesus lived and abided by. He didn't go with them yet because it wasn't his time. Did you make note of that phrase? The time wasn't fully come. It's not my time. And he was referencing a specific Hour. It was the right place, but it was the wrong time. See, there was a divine order to everything that Jesus did, and he never did anything randomly. He acted in perfect harmony with God's eternal purpose. And this is true of every facet of Jesus' life. I just want to trace it through with you as we look at three scriptures together. Let's read Galatians chapter four, verse four together out loud. This is in your notes. It says this. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. This is talking about Jesus' birth, of course. And it says there in Galatians 4 that it happened at the right time. The perfect time in history, the perfect time politically, the perfect time prophetically. All of the pieces came together and all of the stars aligned at that perfect hour. And that's when Jesus was born. Moving on, this verse, next verse comes to us out of Romans chapter 5. Let's read this one together out loud as well. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, same principle. Jesus went to the cross at just the right time in human history. And then one more verse that we'll look at together. This is 1 Timothy 6.15. Let's read it together out loud as well. It says this. At just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. For those of you wondering, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Well, very simply, it's not the right time. Not yet. Now, it could be very soon. And I believe with all of my heart that it is. But he's waiting for the right exact moment. He was born at just the right time, he was crucified at the right time, and he's gonna return at the right time. And what we see throughout Jesus' life is everything happened in accordance with this like perfectly choreographed dance with the Father's will. And so the right time for his appearance in Jerusalem was coming. God's timing is always perfect, and that's true of Jesus, but it's also true for every person in here. Did you know that just like God had a plan and a purpose that was perfectly orchestrated for Jesus, he has a similar plan and a purpose for your life. There is nothing that happens accidentally. You are here, you are where you're supposed to be, you are in the job you're supposed to be in, you're in the family you're supposed to be in. Acts 17 talks about how God has Perfectly chosen and determined the times and exact places where and when we live. Again, there's no accidents. And so the trick for you and I is learning how to walk in lockstep with what the Lord's doing. You don't want to be in the right place at the wrong time. You don't want to get ahead of the Lord, in other words. But you also don't want to lag behind. And God said, come on, let's go. I'm up here. So we need to learn to walk with the flow of the spirit and walk in connection with Jesus stride for stride and step for step. That's what he's talking about in those verses. And moving on in verse 11, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. All right, so we find here the controversial Jesus. And we find that the opinions about him were as varied back then as they are today. Everyone's talking about Jesus all throughout Jerusalem, but they're doing it in whispers. Why? Because they feared the religious leaders. Some people were saying, ah, oh, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, 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 he's a deceiver. He's wicked. You know, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, I quote him regularly, but he talks about the trilemma concerning Jesus. And perhaps you've heard of this before that when it comes to the person of Jesus and his identity, you have all of these opinions and positions and postulations, but ultimately, One of three things is true about Jesus. He's either a Lord, the Lord, sorry, or he's a lunatic or he's a liar. Those are the only three options that really exist. So we can work our way through those. Is he a good man? Well, he didn't leave us that option. Someone who made the kinds of claims that Jesus made about, hey, I'm God. You can't say that that guy is just a good man. He's either telling the truth Or he's a liar so you can't just say he's a good man that's something that crazy people would say but Jesus clearly wasn't crazy and his teachings are proof of that I mean here we are 2,000 years later and we're still wrestling with and thinking through the words of Jesus he had the most brilliant mind in human history so then was he a liar well, liars can't demonstrate the kind of power that Jesus walked in. He raised people from the dead. He spoke brilliantly. He opened blind eyes. And, and so we still have to wrestle through the question that was confronting those people back then. Who is Jesus? And again, it's just as polarizing a topic today as it was then. But ultimately, the, the world finds itself in one of two camps. Either he was who he claimed to be or he wasn't. And that's the way God wants it. Some people try to refuse to pick a team, and they just want to kind of wash their hands of him and remain neutral. They're just like, I'm I'm spiritual Switzerland, you know. Even Switzerland's kind of picking a team right now, aren't they? But you can't do that with Jesus. He didn't intend to leave us that option. Pilate tried to do that. Remember Pilate? He he tried to wash his hands of Jesus I want nothing to do with this man's death and he's gone down in history as being the one responsible for crucifying the Lord you have to come to a decision regarding Jesus and and that's what's happening among the crowds they're all whispering and then verse 14 tells us that halfway through the festival Jesus went up to the temple courts and he began to teach and the Jews there were amazed and they asked how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Okay, so check this out. There were about 30 different yeshivas scattered throughout Israel at the time of Jesus. And these rabbinic schools were the religious equivalent of our modern day Yales and Harvards. They were like the Ivy League of religious schools of the time. But Jesus didn't attend any of them. And this is what really stumped the crowds. They thought, how is he able to teach with such dynamic power when he didn't attend any of our schools? It shocked the people. I mean, even Jesus' enemies were amazed at his teaching. And when they compared Jesus' teaching with the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, they saw some some marked contrasts. For instance, it was... A hallmark of the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, whenever they taught, they would refer and lean heavily upon the past comments of previous rabbis. So they would say, Well, you know, with this passage, Rabbi Gamaliel says this. And so they would lean on what was said before. But then Jesus came along and he would do just the opposite. He would say, You know, you've heard it said that thus and so. But I say to you, in other words, my wisdom trumps the wisdom of the sages. And Jesus preached with power. And they wanted to know where did this power come from? And Jesus tells them in verse 16, my teaching is not my own, but it comes from the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm just delivering to you what I've heard the father share with me. This is this gives us a tremendous insight into how Jesus was able to minister and flow in such power. He met with the father morning by morning and he would commune with his heavenly father and then he just delivered to others what he heard the father say. The prophet Isaiah spoke about this and he prophesied concerning the Messiah. Then this is what he said. Let's read this together out loud. This is Isaiah 50 verse four it says this. The sovereign Lord has given me a well instructed tongue To know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. Wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. Oh, I love that. Jesus would wake up every morning. And he would listen as he prayed, as he communed, as he spent time in the presence of his heavenly father. And the Lord gave him the tongue of the learned. And I love this. So that he might know how to speak a word to him who's weary. Listen, it's possible to say the right thing, but in the wrong tone, the wrong way, in the wrong timing, the wrong manner. And so, knowing how to say the right thing is just as important as knowing what the right thing is to say. And I love the fact that Isaiah 50 verse four says that he was given the tongue of the learned, that he might know how to speak a word to him who is weary at just the right time in just the right way. And what was true of Jesus can be true of every person in this room. As you wake up, as you spend time in the word, it just makes its way into the fabric of your being So that later on during the course of your day as you're carrying on conversations, it's just that the the word of God is seeping out of your pores and it's able to minister to the people you're talking to. It doesn't even have to be scripture that you're quoting to them, but it's just you've been with Jesus and that shows in the communication that you have. And and as proof of that, you know, it's interesting because when you fast forward to the book of Acts, you'll find the disciples And they're standing before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and they made a a similar comment about them that they made about Jesus here. And it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, that when they saw the courage, the boldness, the power, if you will, of Peter and John, and then it says this, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And when you spend time with the Lord, it just shows. And people will take note. They'll be like, wow, that didn't come from you (laughs) because you're not that impressive. (laughs) That was the Lord. (laughs) And you'll be like, yep, I've been spending time. With Jesus and Jesus says it's not me it comes from the one who sent me verse 17 anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own okay give me your attention again I know we didn't go very far here but Jesus says that one of the ways to determine whether or not his teaching truly is from God is to put it to the test in other words the proof is in the pudding (laughs) either it works Or it doesn't, right? There's this great quote from the theologian and writer G.K. Chesterton that puts it, well, it says this, and I quote, "'The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. "'It has been found difficult and been left untried.'" (laughs) In other words, if I can kind of modernize that, it's not that people try Christianity and it just doesn't work. It's that they see that it's hard and they don't even give it a go. And you won't really know what kind of difference Jesus can make in your life until you try him. Like the proverb that says, I heard and I forgot, I saw and I remembered, but I did and I understood. There is power in application when you put it into practice you see hearing isn't as good as seeing but seeing as good as seeing is it's not as good as doing and so again we come back to this theme that it's one thing to have head knowledge but it's something altogether different to have real life experience right a a, a picture a surgeon a surgeon can read all the books that he wants But until he takes the scalpel and makes his first incision, he will never know what surgery really is. Give me the guy that's performed 100 surgeries who also has all the schooling. I don't want the guy that's just like, well, I've read a lot of books, watched a few TV shows. Let me give it a go. And the same is true with regards to our spirituality. When you finally take the step and do what Jesus asks you to do, that's where the life flows into you. That's when your Christianity goes from being theoretical to being experiential. Verse 18, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there's nothing false about him. He is, has not Moses given you the law yet. Not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. You all were amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. All right, Jesus is getting into the weeds with these guys. They obviously are thinking ludicrous thoughts here. And he points out the ludicrousy of their thinking. They're so mad at him because in their minds, he's violated the Sabbath. Remember that miracle in John 5 where Jesus healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda and he had him pick up his mat and walk and all the religious leaders ignored the fact that the lame guy was healed and they focused instead on the fact that he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Talk about having your, your heart in the wrong place. They were, in their own minds, though, just trying to uphold the law of Moses, right? They were these bastions of morality. Jesus is like, really? I mean, you, you, you're claiming Moses here, and, and yet you're trying to kill me. I'm pretty sure that's one of the Ten Commandments. I believe it's number six, so maybe let's start with that one, Their priorities were all out of whack, and Jesus called them out on it in these verses. And then in verse 25, he goes on to say, or I'm sorry, at this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Now this, listen, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. There's another reference to that mysterious hour that John continually returns to. Still, verse 31, many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? And the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And Jesus said, I'm with you for a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will they go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? Okay, a lot of confusing things going on here with regards to Jesus. The people first make this assertion, wait, we know Jesus. We know his parents, Mary and Joseph, you know, the carpenter, and he's from Galilee, and grew up in Nazareth, and they thought they knew him, and there was this miscalculation of ancient prophecies. And they had this misunderstanding about the Messiah. And they thought he would just kind of burst on the scene out of nowhere. And so for many of them, their familiarity with Jesus caused them to reject him. By the way, the same thing can happen in churches, where we become so accustomed to the songs. Oh, it's the song time. We're not worshiping anymore. Our hearts are disengaged. We might even be mouthing the lyrics to a song, but our minds are a million miles away. We might open the book and we read the pages of scripture, but again, our hearts are divorced from the reality of what we're reading. And so our own familiarity with the things of God can threaten the intimacy that those things are intended to create. And so their familiarity caused them to reject him. But then there were some who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Of course, this infuriated the religious leaders who decided enough is enough. And so they sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. But again, they were thwarted in their efforts. Why? Because it wasn't his hour. And so all of this leads to verse 37. And we'll close with verses 37 through 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink Whoever believes in me, the scripture has said rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive up to that time. The spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay, an invitation to come and drink. Let me paint the backdrop for these remarks that Jesus makes. Remember again, the whole setting of John 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles. And he, he says that this happened on the last day, the great day of the feast. And that's significant. You see, as part of the, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven consecutive days, the priest would take a golden pitcher and they would walk from the temple courts down to the pool of Siloam. And there they would dip the golden pitcher into the water and they would carry it back to the temple. And as they did this, the people would recite a specific passage of scripture found in Isaiah chapter 12, verse three, that says this, therefore, with joy, you will draw water out of the wells of salvation. Remember, this is a celebratory mood and atmosphere. And there's singing about the joy of salvation as they draw the water once the priest arrived at the temple he would then process around the altar with the pitcher and then he would pour it into a silver bowl and as he did this the people would sing the Hallel psalms that's psalm 113 through psalm 118 they're all about the lord and the glory of the lord And then he would pour out the water and it reminded the people of how God had provided water from the rock that sustained the ancient Israelites. And they would do this each and every day for seven days. On the seventh day, they would do it seven times and they would walk around the altar seven times and then finally pour out the water. And the eighth day was a silent day. They didn't observe, observe the water ritual. It was a dry day. And so this was the great day of the feast. And there, Jesus, in the midst of the silence as he stands next to the pool, stands up and cries with a loud voice, if anybody thirst, And normally, a teacher or a rabbi would sit down to teach. But this time, Jesus stood as he cried out. The irony, of course, is that he's talking about, if you're thirsty, come to me and he's making these remarks standing next to a pool that is presumably good for drinking, and he's asking people if they're thirsty. But as you think about the picture and the parallel, it is actually quite fitting, you see. Isn't it interesting how even on a physical level, it's not until we're actually dehydrated that the thirst drive kicks in. We often don't recognize our own thirst, in other words. We don't experience that thirst until we've already reached the point of dehydration. And so we have to constantly be reminded by health and wellness coaches or, or, or doctors or experts or dietitians to drink more water. Don't forget to drink water. right? Why? Because we're not aware. And what's true on a physical level is infinitely more so true on a spiritual level. You see, there's a thirst within every human soul that we're very often unaware of. It's not a physical or emotional, but rather a deep spiritual thirst for God. And, and the way that this thirst often manifests itself in our lives is as annoying dissatisfaction, a, a lack of fulfillment or, if you will, a frustration with the things of this world. We talked about this at length in our study through John 4. The woman at the well and how Jesus talked to her about as long as you keep returning to this well, you'll thirst again. And maybe you're familiar with that that itch that you just can't scratch, that desire for something to satisfy. And you're aware of that feeling. And so the question is, where do you go to satisfy that thirst, the thirst of your soul? Because where you go will determine whether or not you thirst again. There are certain wells that we can return to that keep causing us to come back. For Jesus, his invitation is for us to come to him. Why? He says, when when you come and drink from me, I'll become in you a spring, and out of you will flow torrents of living water. And the Greek word there, it speaks of gushing forth. Just think of Niagara Falls just flowing out of you. And this is the desire of God for every one of his kids, that we would walk in the flow of the spirit, that the work of God in our life wouldn't terminate with us, but that we become channels and conduits of his love and his grace. And I love to talk about how the fact that God heals us so that we can become healers he does the work of reconciliation in us so that we can become agents of reconciliation in others. He ministers to us to make us ministers to others. He pours his grace and his love and his mercy into our hearts so that our cups can flow over. I love that part of Psalm 23 where the psalmist David writes, my cup oh, it just runs over. It overflows which is God's heart for us. Now, in verse 39, this he spake of the Spirit, whom those who would believe in him would come to experience. Now, John is adding here his own editorial comments. After the fact, he's writing with the added benefit of hindsight, looking back through history at the time when Jesus said the words. John was just as puzzled as everybody else. What's he talking about? But then Pentecost came. And John was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, things that formerly didn't make sense suddenly made perfect sense. And let me just speak to you here for a moment about this, because there are some in here. And you've had this experience where for, I was talking to somebody about this recently. They said, it was amazing. I sat in church for years. And they used to sit right over here. We came to this church for eight years, and he goes, it was funny, I wasn't a Christian, but I'd come to appease my wife. And and every week, I'd hear the Bible study, and I'd sit through the songs. And it just to me, it was all gibberish. Didn't make any sense, didn't have any power, didn't change me at all. But then I got saved. And he goes, after I got saved, Oh, man, now it's like every word I'm like pausing and I'm like drinking it in and I'm studying and I'm wanting to go deeper. It's like a well of living water and I can't get enough. And I told him that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible talks about how the things of the spirit, they don't make sense to the natural man. And so if you're in here and they're like, this is all Greek to me and I can't make sense or heads or tails of any of this stuff, it's because you need to have your spirit awakened. And the way that you do that is by surrendering your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. But it is the spirit of God that brings understanding to our hearts that cause us to hunger for the things of God. Then we become awakened to the reality of God, and we start to see God's fingerprints all over our story, and it happened for John himself. He's like, oh, the whole first thing. Yes, yes, yes. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. Now it makes sense. And the point in all of this is that you need to experience Jesus for yourself. It's not going to do any good for me to sit here and tell you about him. No, no, no. You need to come to him yourself and have the emptiness in your heart satisfied by a meaningful relationship with God. He wants to fill you to overflowing. He's here in the room and he's ministering by the power of his word and through the power of his Holy Spirit. And if you'll give your heart and your life to him, he will move in and you will never be the same. But you've got to choose to respond. And if we had more time, which we don't. We could go through the rest of the chapter and we would see how there are these various responses to the invitation that Jesus extended. Some responded in faith. Others repelled and pushed back and moved away from Jesus and hardened their hearts, which is why over and over and over again we read in the scriptures, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If your heart is still tender, if you still feel that Hinge of conviction. That's good. That's the Holy Spirit. Don't ever let that go. Cultivate that sensitivity to the Lord's voice. And might you increase in your understanding as you yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for tonight and this word. And I know we, we took a big bite of scripture tonight. We chewed on a lot And so, Lord, I pray that you would take any part of this word that we've looked at tonight. And perhaps there was one word that the Lord highlighted, like a neon sign. And that was the word for you tonight. And I love how the Lord does that. There comes a point at which I, as the preacher in this case, Cease to matter, and you're not hearing me at all anymore. I've been in the crowd enough to know that this happens. And in that moment, you're meeting with God. Because we're not just playing church here. We've invited the risen Lord and his spirit into the room. And so where the spirit falls, the opportunity and the potential for meaningful life change becomes possible for wherever and whenever Jesus walks into a room, broken hearts are mended and dead hearts come alive and the possibility for change becomes real. And so perhaps you've encountered the risen Lord tonight and Jesus has ministered to your heart and you're aware of that now in this moment and your heart is soft and you're hearing him knock on the door of your heart and he's saying, will you let me come in? Drink, satisfy your heart at the source. You can only truly ever be fulfilled when you fulfill your purpose and your design and you were designed by a a loving God who created you to walk in seamless connection with him. And if there are areas of futility, if there are areas of frustration, if there are places and points in your life where it's just not clicking, it's because you've gotten out of alignment And the Lord is calling you back. He's wanting to straighten that out. And the way that you do that is through repentance. Repentance is not an ugly word. It's not a four-letter word. It's a beautiful word. Repentance means to change direction. You've been walking away from the Lord. You've been rejecting his counsel. You've been listening to your own feelings or intuition or your own emotions, your own heart. And it's gotten you in a heap of trouble. And so to repent means to turn around. And if you've been walking away from the Lord, now you turn towards the Lord. And here's what you'll find as you turn. And it's a posture of the heart more than anything else. As you turn your heart towards Jesus, what you're going to experience in that moment is you will feel him moving towards you. And the look in his eye as he moves towards you, it's not a look of disappointment. It's not a look of anger. It's not a look of, you did it again. It's a look of love. And I think of the story of the prodigal son, who when he turned around, and came to himself is the way the scriptures put it. It says the father ran towards him. And the Father is running towards someone in here tonight. He's running to you. As you've turned your heart to Him, I sense it in my spirit. Oh, Lord, I sense it. I sense that you're here and you're healing hearts. You're restoring what was lost. What the enemy stole, you're returning fivefold, sevenfold. The years that the locusts have eaten, the Lord is wanting to restore that to you tonight. Praise you, Lord. If that's you, if you just experience Jesus running towards you and embracing you, would you just slip your hand up? I want to celebrate with you tonight. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord. God is so good. He's so good. Don't resist him. And we just celebrate. We celebrate. We say thank you. Let me just lead you in a prayer. Say thank you, Jesus, for being my life and my light and my love. You've come to me in the perfect way at the perfect time to fulfill your perfect plan. I receive your love.